Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast, Tuesday Theology Edition. At Scotts Hill, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So on Tuesday nights, our pastors teach a class focused on topics within systematic theology. They do this to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. This podcast is a recording of that teaching session. Enjoy! Now, as we begin our discussion in theology, we're going to begin by the study of God's Word. And the obvious question might come to mind is, why do we begin studying the Bible? If we're going to begin about wanting to study theology, the character, the nature of God, the understanding of humanity and the world, why do we begin with the Bible? Why do we begin with the Word of God? Vince Lombardi was a great legendary coach, particularly of the Green Bay Packers. And it was said that every year when he would have a training camp, all of these new recruits and the returning players would come in. Now, some of these were professional football players that had played for many years. Some of them had played for all their life, from high school to college and now in the pros. He would line all of these players up at training camp. He would do the same thing every year. He'd say, men, welcome to football. He said, we're going to begin with the fundamentals. He'd pull out a football. He'd say, let's begin with the fundamentals. This is a football. And he would begin there. And you wouldn't wonder, why would he begin with such a silly illustration? Every one of them knew that was a football. But he understood this, that if we're going to understand the game of football, you cannot understand the game of football without a football. And if we're going to understand truth, we cannot understand truth without that which is true. And so we begin with the Word of God, and we begin with a source of authority, and we begin with a source of inerrancy. And so as we begin our study of God, it is very important that we always begin with the Bible, with the Word of God. Now, there are several reasons why we need to do this. Let me just give you some. The Bible tells us things about God and His nature, His attributes, and His works, and his ways that we could not understand apart from the Bible. So here's my first question to you. What are some of the things that we learn about God that only comes from the Bible? I want you to shout it out. What are some things that we learn about God that only comes from the Scriptures? His omnipresence. He's everywhere. He is spirit, not a spirit. And because he is spirit, he's everywhere at once. What else do we learn? Okay, we learn about the triune nature of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You would never know that from nature, and you would never know that from any other writing in humanity. What else? He's holy, that he is set apart, that there is none like him. Mike, he is truth. He is truth, and we're going to look at that tonight. What are some other things? Ron. Okay, he is a, a covenant-keeping God, and he is faithful to his promises. He's eternally what? Okay, yes. From everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90, he is God. These are great illustrations. You cannot know these things about God apart from the Word of God. Now, let me give you another one. 
The Bible tells us some things about humanity and our nature and our destiny and our hope that we cannot find apart from the Bible. So what are some of the things that we learn about humanity that only comes from the Bible? Okay, we are sinners by nature and by choice. Somebody else. Excellent. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. The Bible teaches us that. What else? We have a sinful nature. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could know it? Okay? We have hope in the reality that even though we're broken sinners, there is hope for humanity. You see, you wouldn't find these things in nature, and you wouldn't find them in any other source. Or how about, how about when it comes to the issue of spiritual um, warfare or spiritual supernatural or prophecy or future things? What are some of the things that we learn that can come only from these things in the Bible? What do we learn about the supernatural world? Okay, it exists. It's there. It's real. That we have an enemy. What's his name? Satan, Lucifer, the adversary, the serpent, the devil. Yeah. What are some other issues that we learn? What about prophecy? We could see and understand future events only as we are involved in the truth of God's Word. The last thing I want us to see is just the history and historical events that we would not know apart from the Bible. What are some historical facts or events that we can learn that only comes from the Bible? Creation. Yeah, creation. Somebody said something else? The resurrection. Okay. The fall. His miracles. His return. How about the flood? Yeah, the, all the circumstances leading up to the flood. There are a lot of historical things that we can learn from the Bible. In fact, do you realize that many archaeologists have said this? They have said that we have discovered entire civilizations and cities that the Bible spoke of that we did not know of until archaeology uncovered those things. And there's no archaeological find that has ever uh, contradicted the truth of the Word of God. And so, as we look at all of these things, these are the reasons we need to start with the Bible. Because it's the Word of God that teaches us all of these things. And I want to tell you, we cannot know the true God of the universe apart from His Word. Now, if we're going to use the Word of God to help us to understand the nature and the character of God, then that's got to be something that we can see is authoritative, that it is inerrant, that it is something that is reliable, and it's something that is trustworthy. And so in order for us to believe these things about God, we've got to have confidence in the source of authority and truth, which is the Word of God. That's why we start here. I want to tell you, every person that drifts into liberalism biblically, deny two things. 
one at the beginning of the Old Testament and one at the beginning of the New Testament. They deny the fact that God created. And they deny the reality that Jesus was born of a virgin and is the Son of God. And they drift from those two major truths into false teaching. And so they do not adhere to the authority of God's Word. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at why we can have confidence in this. You've read chapter 2. You've looked at all of the questions. But what I want to do is set it up in such a way that you and I can come to understand. I'm going to help instruct us as we walk through the questions, as we ask these questions. As you ask these questions, I want your mind to be focused on these things. So where do we begin? We begin with the authority of Scripture. And so as we look at the authority of Scripture, we want to see um, a number of things. And Wayne Grudem brings out a number of really great points when it deals with the authority of Scripture. The first thing we want to do is we want to look at the definition. Now, let me say something about the definition. Wayne Grudem's definition of authority has two parts of it. One of it I am very comfortable with. But the other part of it, I'm very uncomfortable with. And let me explain it to you. Here's the part that I'm very comfortable with. He says the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words. I'm comfortable with that. The authority of Scripture says that all of the words in Scripture are God's words. He spoke them. We know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, he says that all your words are true. The Bible, listen carefully, the Bible does not contain the Word of God. Many people say that. And I hear people all the time say, the Bible contains the Word of God. No, no, no. The Bible does not contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And those are two different statements. Because if I say the Bible contains the Word of God, then I get to pick and choose what I think is and what is not the Word of God. And if I do that, my authority is greater than the authority of the one who spoke the Word. And so I don't have any problem with this. Probably no one in the room has a problem with this because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Here's the part that I'm uncomfortable with is the second part. You ready? The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. Now, some of you are wondering, why do you have a problem with that? I don't have a problem with that because I don't believe that's true. I have a problem with that because I know that's true. That's my problem. My problem is this. If I'm going to say that the Bible and all the words are God's words. And if I disbelieve them, then I'm questioning the authority of God in my own heart. And if I disobey them, then I'm sinning against God in my own heart. And so we've got to have both of these. And that's why I love this definition. 
This definition says, listen, first of all, not only do I believe that all the words in this book are God's words, but I also know this, that if I disbelieve them, I am standing against what God has said, and if I disobey them, then I'm living contrary to what he has said for my life. Now, let me make one clarity here. There's a difference between disbelieving the Word of God and not understanding the Word of God, okay? I cannot understand the Word of God but still accept it as God's Word. If I disbelieve it, then what I'm doing is saying that is not true, and I put my own philosophy above the truth of God's Word. God's 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if anyone who says he is, does not sin, he says, the truth is not in him, and he makes God to be a what? A liar. A liar. And so I can not understand God's Word and still believe that it is His Word. Let me give you an illustration in Scripture. Remember when Mary, the angel appears to Mary in the New Testament, and the angel says to Mary, says that you will conceive and give birth to a son? Do you remember what she asked the angel at that point? Somebody tell me, what did she ask? What? How can this be? How can... She didn't say, no, I don't believe you. I don't believe... Gabriel, you... Man, you don't know me very... I don't believe a word you have just... She didn't say that. She said, how can this be? So even though she didn't understand, she certainly didn't disbelieve it. She was confused, and then the angel will be able to walk her through that. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and you will conceive a son, and his name will be called Jesus, and we go through the rest of that. So here's the thing with the authority. If I'm going to say I believe all of God's words in the Bible or his words, then I must be also serious about obeying them. I must be serious about believing them. I saw a bumper sticker years ago. You probably have seen this bumper sticker. It was very popular, and everybody loved this bumper sticker. It said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, I just think you need to take the middle part out. It really doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, and that settles it. And that's the truth. So as we go through this tonight, and as we look at this, we've got to understand this biblical authority. So when I pick up this Bible, I have to believe that all the words in it are God's words. And if I disbelieve them, and if I disobey them, then it's an offense to a holy God. Now, in this chapter, he lays out some things that you and I need to understand. It's one thing for you and me to have a biblical understanding of biblical authority. It's another thing for you and me to be able to understand what that means and how I can explain that and defend it. Now, I want you to know a few things about the Bible. Do you know that the Bible every year is the number one book, selling book, every year, with the exception of one year? And I'll tell you about that in a moment. But the Bible is the number one selling book since the time of the printing press. It is estimated that 5 billion copies of scriptures have been produced. 5 billion! 
That's almost one Bible for every person on the planet. I mean, there's 7 billion people living today, but 5 billion copies of Scripture have been printed since the printing press. Now, the closer runner up to that is 400 million, and that was Harry Potter. Harry Potter. In fact, the only time that the Bible was not the best-selling book of the year was when Harry Potter sold more than the Bible that year. And so what we find is 400 million compared to 5 billion doesn't even come close. And then we recognize that the Bible has been translated in more languages than any other book in history. No other book has been translated. You know that the average American home, there are three Bibles in each home? Think about your own home. How many Bibles do you have at your house? Some of you are like, wow, I can't even count. I mean, Chris and I have so many Bibles, different translations, so we could look at this one, this one. How many of you have a phone with you that has a Bible app on it? You have limitless translations and Bibles. You know that because of these things, we are never outside of the access of the Word of God. And here's the amazing thing, that you would think that because of that in our culture that the Bible would be the most revered book among us. But today, it is one of the most attacked books. And so people are going to come in this postmodern world and come against you if you believe the Word of God. And so I'm, we need to understand what we believe. And if somebody comes to you and says, why are you reading that book? Why do you actually believe it? Do you believe everything it says in there? How can you defend that that is the Word of God? So one of the things that um, Grudem helps us understand is he gives us one of the points, and that first point is that all the words in Scripture are God's words. All the words in Scripture are God's words. And he says that there are four ways that a believer can defend this statement. Now, I'm going to ask some of you to be able to come to the microphones and be able to speak on what you've learned from that. And don't be shy. If this is one that you want to answer, and I don't want you to come and answer everyone. So we got enough people in here to be able to answer. So, but the, the first point he says is this. How do we answer? This is what the Bible claims for itself. Now, I was thinking about this. Why would he start with that point? We can say that the Bible is God's words because this is what the Bible claims about itself. Now, think about this. If the Bible didn't claim itself to be authoritative, then something else or someone else would have to claim it to be authoritative, and then that would make that more authoritative than the Word of God itself. But the fact that the Bible is authoritative, it has to claim that for itself or it would never be authoritative. Can you imagine? If nowhere in the Scriptures, nowhere in the Scriptures, God's Word says that it's the Word of God. Nowhere in the Scriptures, if it said the Bible is not trustworthy, nobody would ever believe the authority of the Bible. So what we find is the Bible says it is authoritative. Now, how would you defend that if you were speaking to a person? How would you say and explain this truth and why it is so important that the Bible claims it for itself? Let's go to the next question real quick, okay? I don't, I don't want to run out of time. We are convinced that the Bible's claims to God's words 
as we read the Bible. He says this is the second argument. When it comes to the issue of proving that all the words of Scripture are God's Word, well, the Bible claims it for itself. Old Testament, New Testament. Second thing we see is that we're convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's Word when we read the Bible. Now, does that mean that every single person who reads the Bible comes to the conclusion, wow, these are the words of God? What's the one element that is necessary, according to Grudem, that we need in our lives to come to the place to believe that all of these words are God's words? The Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Do you remember reading the Bible before you were a Christian? How many of you remember reading the Bible and you just, man, you're like, man, I don't get this. I just don't get this. And then after you've come to faith in Christ, you've been able to read and then understand and grasp. Paul says to the non-spiritual man, these things are not discernible. But to those who are spiritual, they are discerned. Because the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God. Now, I want to say this. There have been countless unbelievers who have gone to the Word of God to disprove it. And then the Spirit of God working through them with the Word of God brought them to a place of conversion and belief. That's the living Word. And so here is another proof. Here's a third one. Other evidence is useful but not finally convincing. What are some of the other evidences that he mentions that are useful but not really convincing um, maybe of people who hear them? One of my favorite all-time gospel conversations I've had was in a, in a hair salon where... I go to this hair salon, which is almost all elderly women go there. I go there because I can get in. The girl cuts my hair. I really don't care who cuts my hair. You know, she does a good job. I went in there one day, and there's this little lady that was in there, and she was Jewish. And I walked in there. And as I was sitting there, the girl that was cutting my hair, she says, she asked the craziest question. She said, Phil, do you ever sin? She knew I was a pastor. She said, do you ever sin? I said, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Ask my kids. They'll tell you. And then... The little lady says, and she says something about it, and I was, we were talking about Christ, and she said, well, I just want you to know, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm Jew, and I don't believe he's the Son of God. I said, well, do you not believe that because you've done the research and the study, and you've come to the absolute conclusion that there is no way Jesus could be the Messiah that's fulfilled through Scripture? No! I said, well, how did you come to that? She said, my mom and dad told me. I said, oh, so did they study the history and the culture and the scriptures and come to the conclusion that there's no way that Jesus could possibly be the son of God? She says, no. I said, well, how did they come to that conclusion? She said, their parents told them. I said, oh, so your grandparents studied and did all that? She said, no, no, no. I said, so you're making a decision on Jesus Christ not being the Messiah simply because somebody told you he wasn't. And she said, well, you tell me why you think he is. I said, I thought you would never ask. And I sat right there, and I took her to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, took her from the Garden of Eden all the way to Psalm 22, to Isaiah 53, and I walked through the Scriptures with her. And then I told her, and I said, let me tell you what he did for me. And when I explained to how he changed my life, she looked at me and she said, I like you. She said, you didn't try to push all that down my throat. Plus, you kind of look like Tom Cruise. And uh, 
she, she did not have good eyesight. And I was much younger back then. But it is to change life. It's the Word of God and it's the changed life that go together that make an impact in the lives of people. Uh, there's a fourth one. The words of Scripture are self-attesting. What does that mean? Somebody tell me. Tell us, what does that mean? They're self-attesting. Yeah. The Scripture is kind of a circular argument, isn't it, as he says in the book. There is no higher authority than the Word of God. Who is going to be a higher authority than the Word of God? So if the Word of God says it is all Scripture, there is no other authority that can question that. You know what's interesting? When you read through the Gospels, the preaching of Jesus was astounding to the people. It, the, the common phrase in the book of Mark is this, and they were amazed, and they were amazed. And you know what they were amazed at? It all says the same thing. You, anybody here remember what they were amazed at? Spoke with authority. Exactly. When Jesus spoke with authority, you know what? All the scribes of that day, all of the Pharisees and the teachers and the rabbis, they always quoted someone else. They might have quoted the Old Testament, but they were always quoting some rabbi or some other person. It's really interesting. Jesus never quoted a rabbi. He only quoted himself. And you might say, well, he quoted the Old Testament. Yeah, he is the living word. He is the ultimate authority. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus praying a prayer. Oh, 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 I, I, I pray that these disciples would grasp this. So help me, me. You know, <laughs> he is God. And he had such incredible authority that the people were so amazed at him. The Bible has that authority. Now, here's the objection that he says. The objection to this circular argument is it is a circular argument. To say that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe the Bible to be the Word of God because the Bible says that it is the Word of God. If somebody came to you and said, that's a, that's a circular argument, how, what would you say? How would you even defend that? So if it is based on the authority, then there's nothing wrong with a circular argument if it's true, and it falls to that. Now, the second part that he says in here about Scripture is that he talks about the truthfulness of Scripture. And you remember what he says about the truthfulness of Scripture? That we can know that all the words in the Bible are God's words, and he laid out the four arguments. But another thing, understanding the authority of Scripture, is that it's truthful, and it has to be truthful. And in this argument, he lays out a number of different points in there. He gives, in fact, four specific points dealing with this. He says, God cannot lie or speak falsely. Titus 1-2 says, God who cannot lie. And then Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says, he does not break his oaths or his promises. That says, God cannot lie. Now, here's my question to you. Why is it important that God cannot lie for the authority of the Word of God to be true. So if, if, if there's any part of it that's untrue, then none of it can be trusted. 
None of it. Because then it would be up to you and me to try to discern, okay, is this something that would be true that God said? Or is this something that God said that isn't true? Then you would have to reject the entire word of God. So if we're going to know that, we need to know the fact that this, God cannot lie. And if God cannot lie, then all the words are true. Now, let me show you something. This is contrary to the gods of our world. Allah, for example, is not a benevolent God. He can be a malevolent God. He can sin, but he chooses not to. He can lie, but he chooses not to. And when you look at the God of Islam, Allah can choose to do evil. Now, if he can choose to do evil, then there's a possibility that he will do evil. And if he can choose to lie, then there's a possibility that he will lie. But that is never a possibility with our God. He can never do evil. He can never sin. He can never lie. And if he can never lie, and if I believe that, and he tells us that, then I can believe the truth of what God's Word says. And it is absolutely trustworthy. The second thing he says is, all the words of Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. Now, have you ever had people come to you and say that the Bible is full of errors? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah. Here's the other side of that question. Have you ever had anybody point out to you specifically where the errors are? Yeah. Okay. Supp supposed errors. And what was that? Do you remember? Yeah. And that's usually always the case. But the majority of people who will say that the Bible is full of errors are people who have never read the Bible, or they don't even know the context of it, as Jose said. And so what happens is there's really no defense to that. But most of the time, we don't even, as believers, know how to answer the questions dealing with that. Here's another one, is God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. Here's my question. In John 17, 17, here's what Jesus says. He's, this is the high priestly prayer. He's praying. He says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Now, suppose you're having a conversation with an individual. And that individual comes to you and says, I don't know that I can believe the Bible. How would you take this verse and be able to share with them and help them to understand the difference between something that's true and something that's truth. And, and, and the way that you approach that is a way that we need to approach that in our culture because what's one of the, the, the greatest enemies of truth in modern day culture? Yeah? What's that called? Plural, pluralism. We also call that moral relativism. Okay, what's the big phrase today? Hashtag live your, live whose truth? 
Your truth. Yeah. And so because of that, we have people that are living in a culture. And, and, and this is the biggest struggle of apologetics and sharing the gospel today is people don't believe in truth anymore. And if they don't believe in truth, the thing we have to take them to is the fact that there's something outside of ourselves. Anytime somebody tells me uh, there are no absolutes, I always ask, are you absolutely sure? Because you just stated an absolute. And you've just destroyed your entire argument by that statement. Because there's at least one absolute. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's yours. And so what we need to understand is that it is the ultimate source of truth. The Bible is not just true. It is truth. And truth, objective truth, is truth that crosses all cultures at all times for all peoples in all circumstances in all situations always number four might some oh, I love this one might some new fact ever contradict the Bible they find an archaeological dig and somebody comes up and says we found the bones of Jesus that did happen in the 80s by the way and it was all hoax it wasn't true. Or somebody says, oh, we've discovered that there are aliens. There's really extraterrestrial life, and they're landing on our planet and all that stuff, you know. What might be something that they find that can contradict the Bible? Nothing. I did have one person that told me, told me one time, he said that even if they found the bones of Jesus, it wouldn't change my view of truth because I don't believe that Jesus needed to rise from the dead in order to validate God's love for us. That's a dangerous thing because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that validates that he is exactly who he said he is. And that's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important. And so we get into that. Now, these are the things that we can talk about. I'm not supposed to walk past that little red dot there. Uh, these are the things that, that we can talk about when it deals with the authority of God's Word. So now, let's jump into this thing of inerrancy. We're going to have to go pretty quickly here, okay? Because the inerrancy of Scripture is simply this. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. Now, here's the thing. The key word there is original manuscripts. Do we have the original manuscripts? No, we don't have the original manuscripts. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But in the original manuscripts, we're saying that it is absolutely true and it, it does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. And in this, he points out a number of different things that we understand. The Bible, and this is some of the arguments, the Bible against inerrancy. The Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. In other words, the Bible is only good for the things that we need to live our lives to please God with. But in all the other details where it could possibly be untrue, those things are not as important. And so we only really need to focus on the big picture of what God really wants to say to us. And let's not worry about the little details wherever there might be some questions or some difficult phrases 
or maybe some seemingly contradicting things from one book to the next book. And so there's an argument there that says, well, we really don't want to focus so much on inerrancy as you want to focus on infallibility. It's infallible. Yeah, but I don't know. It probably has some errors in it. That's one of the arguments. And a lot of people in the church have come to that argument because they don't know how to describe inerrancy. Here's the second thing. Inerrancy is a poor term. It's a historical term. They don't like the term, but it's the term of what it is, and we just stick to it. The third thing is that we have no inerrant manuscripts, therefore, talk about inerrant Bible is misleading. So since we don't have any original manuscripts, we can never fully know what is really accurate and what's inaccurate. That's one of the arguments, and it seems to be a valid argument for many people. And the last one is this. Biblical writers were influenced by ideas of their day. In other words, they had borrowed some of the myths of their days. And such as the Great Flood, so many cultures have had great floods. And so they kind of borrow that and this and this. And they wrote according to just the cultural mores of their day. And not necessarily the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then some will say that there are clear errors in the Bible. Some people would just come right out and say that. So those are some of the arguments against the inerrancy. But one of the things I want you to see, and I don't have any of this in notes for you, but I can make them available to you. When it comes to testing the reliability of an ancient document, there are four tests that always take place. I want to give you these four tests. One is called the bibliographical test. These won't be on the screen. I don't have them. I'm just talking off the top of my head right here, okay? The bibliographical test. The bibliographical test asks three questions about all manuscripts. Number one, how many manuscripts are there? Number two, how good are the manuscripts? And number three, how close to the original manuscripts are these in years? So those are the three questions. So when it comes to the Bible, let me help you. The Old Testament, we have 2,000 manuscripts to support the Old Testament documents. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Finding those in 1947 gave us a clear understanding that in the Old Testament, the canon of Scripture was virtually as it was when they found it 1,000 years later, with the exception of the Book of Esther. And by the way, they believed that the Book of Esther was not included in that canon of Scripture that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls because there's no mention of God in the Book of Esther. We did a whole series on Esther, and we entitled it um, um, God in the Dark. And so that uh, there we have 2,000 manuscripts for the Old Testament. For the New Testament, 24,000 manuscripts. 24,000. How does this compare with other writings? <laughs> the closest runner-up is Homer's Iliad, and it has 600 manuscripts. 600. The closest runner-up. 2,000, 24,000. Now, how good are the manuscripts? Manuscripts have variants in them. And a variant can be maybe a misspelled word, maybe a little bit of different punctuation, something that creates it to be a variant from one manuscript to the other. In the New Testament manuscripts, there are 200,000 variants. 200,000. Of the 200,000, they're located in 10,000 areas. Of the 10,000 areas, there are 50 words that are actually changed. 
of the 50 words that are actually changed in 24,000 manuscripts, there's not one change of the context of the sentence. Not one. How does that run with other books? Well, Caesar's Gallic War has 20 times the variance. And the variants are so major that entire paragraphs have been changed. And that of all the collection of Gallic's War, Caesar's Gallic War, no one knows which the original text could possibly be because they're so different. How about close in time? That we find that the manuscripts for the Old Testament are a thousand years removed. Then we find in the New Testament that John chapter 18, uh, a part of that is... 70 years from the life of Christ. How does that compare with other ones? It's, the other ones are 1,400, 1,200, and 900 years removed from it. So when you look at the bibliographical test, the Bible wins hands down. Then you've got the, the, the external test. The external test talks about all the sources that speak of the Bible. And there's so many, I can't even name them. Then you talk about the internal test. And in the internal test, we find that all the books of the Bible have a common theme, and they run through it written on, on 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages over 1,500 years. And then what you discover is there's a common theme right through it, and you see Jesus through the whole Bible. What about the archaeological test? In the archaeological test, as I said earlier, there's been no archaeological find that's ever controverted the truth of the Bible. And when you take all of the tests that are used for ancient documents, the Bible is one of the most reliable books that has ever been written. I want you to hear what one man writes. His name is William Albright. He was one of the most outstanding archaeologists. He says this. He says, There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. One man wrote this, Sir Frederick Kenyon. In no other case is the internal, I mean, the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as in the New Testament. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Basically, he's saying this, that there's so much evidence to support the reliability of the text that we virtually have word for word what was written by the original authors themselves. No other book has that ability. It even comes close to it. And so what we see is this whole thing of inerrancy. When people argue it, they don't know all the arguments that you and I can have and help them to understand the depths and the reliability of the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are the words of God. They're authoritative. They're inerrant. They have no, they have no error. Now, some of the things that are disputed, there are things that we might not understand. 
There are things that people have said could not have been. Let me tell you. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are five cities of the plain that are mentioned in the Scriptures. For years and years and years, scholars have said that is not true, that cannot be possibly true. We have no historical record of those five cities. And so they use that as a point of showing that the Bible is not inerrant, it's got errors in it. Twenty years ago, they found a tablet in Mesopotamia. And that tablet listed the five cities on the plain that the Bible listed. And they never knew it before that point. And that's why we're saying that this is reliable. It's infallible. We can rest in it. And even though I don't fully understand it, the one thing I can do is I can trust it. So one of the things we must come to the understanding of theology is if I don't see the authoritative word and the inerrancy of God's word, then I can't believe anything that's in it. Or worse, I'm going to pick and choose what I want. I'm going to create a religion that's kind of a Piccadilly style of I want this and I want this and I want this. And rather than having the God of the Bible, I'm going to create the God that I want. And we're going to look at that further next week as we look at the sufficiency and the necessity of Scripture. We hope that this podcast was a blessing to you and that you grew in your knowledge of God. If you liked this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your friends and your family on social media so that others can hear the truth of God's Word. Till next time.